0: Welcome to the seventh episode of the Camp
1: Was pub. Today we're joined by Henry Jobber, aka CJ. CJ, if you'd like to introduce yourself, please. Hello, Henry and Medina. I'm CJ. Brilliant. Should we just get started? Can you maybe talk about like your own personal journey to where you are today?
2: Sure. So there's a professional journey and I guess there's a social media journey. I have been blogging Since late 2008, I write about chemistry jobs and a lot of other what used to be considered undercovered issues, chemical safety, mental health, work-life balance in chemical academia. And also these days, I tend to think more about the chemical industry just because I work in the chemical industry and I don't work in academia anymore. And so while I still do a lot of different things, I tend to think about what it is like to be a student or recover process through what it was like to be a student now that I've been out of my postdoc for 10 years, which is pretty shocking. It just seemed like yesterday. Also, I have been on Twitter for 11 years now and do a lot of chemistry-related stuff on Twitter. People probably know me best for being one of the co-curators of the Chemistry Faculty Jobs List, which is a list of all of the tenure-track academic positions in chemistry departments in the United States and Canada. It's an endeavor that I am proud of and that we've done for six years now, which is pretty amazing to think about. And we've been able to answer some questions that we didn't know we had about the absolute odds of getting a tenure-track faculty position in chemistry in the US and Canada.
0: Yes, I think it's great that you're kind of raising the awareness for these issues and also bringing attention to the importance of, you know, keeping track of all these things. And I think one of the questions that I was wondering is that, so you said that you've been doing that for so many years. Do you see that it helps? Were there people that would reach out to you and be like, thank you so much for doing that. It really helped me. Or is it kind of like a steady track, basically, in terms of the progress of finding a job as a faculty position?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I started looking for work, and this kind of gets back to my professional journey. I started looking for work in March of 2008, which in the United States, and I suspect in the UK as well, was not an easy time to be looking for work in the pharmaceutical industry. And that really shaped my experience. And by coincidence, I was an industrial postdoc, which meant that I was the only job seeker in a group of chemical professionals. And I felt a little bit alone. And I think I was just one of the first people to do what We do these days, which is when you feel alone in your physical world, you kind of turn to the internet. And now I think that we've always had a fairly large community online, or at least since I can remember being a part of chemistry social media as a participant, which is Derek Lowe's blog in 2003. Oh my God, it's almost 20 years. Yeah, I do think that there has been some progress made. I think that we have been able to play a small part in helping people look for work. And there are lots of things that we've been able to, people kind of know there's a bunch of resources, if only just transcripts of Twitter threads or whatever that people know that is out there to help you with jobs.
1: I think you kind of touched on that kind of the power of like, especially now social media and and Twitter, especially, I think, you know, over the past maybe 10 years or so, you know, since more people use it, it's kind of become a a secondary kind of job sport where, you know, you click the hashtag and you can kind of find relevant positions quite often you know, posted by yourself or kind of others, you know, who share them? Could you touch on that kind of the whole Ken Jobber thing on Twitter? Kind of how did that come about? Kind of where did that idea come from?
2: That's actually really interesting because for a while I resisted getting on Twitter and I don't really remember why, but I do remember thinking, oh, this is, you know, one more thing to do. I don't really feel like doing it. But in September... 2010, I got on Twitter and there was a time period where all there was, it felt like, was just scientists on Twitter. And there was a lot of crosstalk and the number of chemists on Twitter was relatively small, it felt like. And then the number of scientists on Twitter was also relatively small. And I think both of those numbers have gone up significantly since then. and. Interestingly, the two communities feel like they've diverged a bit. And it's been an opportunity to kind of figure out what works well for me. I primarily like to be on Twitter to see what other people are thinking. And I enjoy it because it's like being able to stand in the chemistry equivalent of Grand Central Station or I think King's Crossing and kind of be able to see everybody's thoughts. And oftentimes it's, you know, I am hungry or here's the paper that I'm working on. But also there's a lot of stuff where I am nervous about looking for a job or I have a job, but I don't like it, or I hate my boss or going to the lab doesn't make me happy anymore, or I don't know how to tell the world that. I don't want to be a chemist anymore. I think these are interesting thoughts that everybody has. And that Twitter is a great way to sort of work through these problems. And then, of course, you know, there's me standing in the railway station. And, you know, the flyer, it's like a flyer drifts by. You can pick it up and say, like, look, somebody's looking for a chemist.
0: (laughs) I think that's great. Especially, I guess, one of the things that I really like is sometimes you experience something in your life and you feel like you're the only one that experiences that. And then you see a post and God, it makes you feel so much better that you're not the only one. There's somebody else with exactly the same problem. And you can just observe. You don't have to comment or just say, oh, okay, I can keep going. I'm not the only one.
1: Yep, absolutely. It's that feeling, I think, of essentially being a fly on the wall and just being able to kind of see, you know, what everyone else is doing and just kind of engage from almost from a distance and
2: you know, sometimes you're an observer and sometimes you're a participant and sometimes doing one is sort of doing both.
0: So I guess one of the other things I remember the first time when I saw your Twitter profile, CJ, I was like, oh, that's great. And then I looked at the picture and then I saw a yellow duck. And the first question that I had, why the duck? And then (laughs) here we are after so many years. I mean, like a couple of years I've been on Twitter. I was like, okay, what questions should we prepare? That was the first question that we were thinking about asking. So could you touch on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So of course, now I have to like come up with some deep philosophical background for it. I have... Kind of deep down inside, a real desire to test things that everybody knows is true, to say, is that really true? And oftentimes it's something that nobody really knows the answer to, like how many jobs are there out there for chemists is something that I really want to know because I want to understand both the problem of the numerator and the denominator. How many chemists are there? How many jobs in chemistry are there? Which is, as you can imagine, a fairly ambitious thing. And then there's the silly stuff, which is where the duck came from. So first of all, my second daughter was born and the company that I was working for at the time, they sent us a flower arrangement. So this duck came with a bouquet of flowers and the bouquet of flowers lived and then wilted and was thrown out and we were left with this duck and it sort of sat on our counter for a little while at the same time the chatter of the moment on chemistry social media which of course at that time was mostly blogs was about laboratory sabotage, that basically that there are these stories, which I want to say are true. There are documented cases within global science of one scientist within a laboratory messing with the work of another scientist. And I felt that the vast majority of these stories were sort of urban legendy, right? It's never happening in your lab where somebody is behind your back putting something in your reaction or taking something out, I suppose. But it's always in the American phrase, a friend of a friend told me this story of something bad happening in that other lab. And so... I ran a contest to try to elicit a bunch of these stories. And then also I said, as a prize, I will give away this duck. And so the ceramic duck and I think I said something like the back will be filled with the finest hard candies in all of America. So that was the goal. And I did hear a number of sad stories, but nobody ever said, you know, this is me and this is true. And I claimed the duck. And what's interesting now is that that was 2010, 2011. And within a year or two, there was a prominent case at the University of Michigan where a young woman was a graduate student, I think in biology, some sort of biology. And she actually documented her labs postdoc messing with her experiments in off hours and it was filmed and that's what drove her discovery of it in the news coverage i feel like now cameras are so ubiquitous that i imagine that i haven't looked recently but there's more documentation of broadly speaking coworkers being mean to one another but also coworkers in science being mean to one another so
1: that's really interesting i think you know that's kind of the stuff that you don't really hear about and Again, it's kind of times where perhaps Twitter is quite good for that because you do hear, like you say, kind of on the grapevine about like different things from, at the end of the day, it's a global community. So, you know, hearing about something in Michigan, you know, being in the UK, it's really quite eye-opening in a way, I think.
0: It's very sad to hear that because I feel like it all comes back from that philosophy of the way how people look at the grad school and how people measure success. And if you go deep into the problem itself, it's just the way how some people probably compare grad students with each other. And it's very hard to resist that temptation of comparing yourself to other students. So I feel like getting that into, you know, a higher level, like worse in that situation and having that, you know, turning into you being competing to the extent that you, you know, ruin other people's experiments is definitely terrible. But I feel like it all comes back from the philosophy of, I wish people looked differently at the way how people measure success of grad students and how people, you know, take more individualistic point of view, instead of just being like, okay, these are my grad students, how are these all doing among themselves, which is, I guess, the way how it is.
2: Yeah, it's very strange that I suppose most of the time in science, you hope, and I think most of us do feel that the success in our laboratory or success in somebody else's laboratory is good. And it is odd and interesting that there are situations in which people feel that other people's success is bad for you, which is
1: odd. No, definitely. I think, yeah, just bringing a light to that, I think is important. So I think the more that can be done with that, I think the better. I think we asked you a few questions before we started today. So one of those was, have you got kind of a funny slash embarrassing kind of job interview story from kind of your time in you know various roles? I do remember a funny one, which is
2: that I have the habit of giving people advice about salaries and salary negotiations during job interviews. And I interviewed at a very small company in San Diego once. And the person who interviewed me asked me what my salary requirements were. I said a number that I thought was relatively low, but I might have been a little bit desperate. And I said, oh, you know, $80,000 would be fine. And she, sort of acted in shock and $80,000 is very high. And I realize now in American salary negotiations, it feels like absolutely the dumbest dance in the world, but it demonstrates the, the seeming reality that the first person to name a number is the loser. And so the goal of this particular little stupid dance is don't be the first person to name a number. And, Of course, I fell for the trap. But also in that time, I remember I was working at a really nice laboratory because I was a postdoc in industry at a major pharmaceutical company. And we had lots of equipment, and it was an ideal place to be an organic chemist. And at the time, there were a lot of LCMSs that were. Walk-up instruments. It was great. So all you had to do was prepare your sample, throw it in there, put it on the queue, load it up, and bang, in 20 minutes, you'd have a LC of your data, of your reaction progress, and also mass spec data to go along with it. And so me being naive, I said, Do you folks have LCMS? And this nice lady said, No, but TLC is a very powerful technique, which is true. It is a very powerful technique, but I submit to you it is not as powerful as LCMS. <laughs> now that I think about it, I remember that it felt like she would periodically call me and say, "We haven't made a decision yet, but we really need you." You know, eighty thousand dollars is a lot of money, and of course, now that I look back on it. I'm like, no it was not a lot of money (laughs) because at the time i was like well gee i feel really bad you know that i've asked for this but at that time i did know something which is that like don't negotiate with yourself right when somebody says oh well your number is very high the right answer is well okay what is your
1: number i think it's difficult and i think it's interesting to hear kind of the way it works in the US. I think for in the UK, especially if you're a graduate, you know, be it PhD or master's student coming out and looking for a job, often you'll see competitive salary on an advert. And always the question will be, well, how competitive, you know, what number are we talking? And it's almost that taboo topic in like a job interview where, you know, you're not sure whether or not to ask the question or if you are kind of how you'd ask the question to kind of get around it.
0: Yeah,
2: it is a very weird dance and it gets to both national cultural expectations about money, and also I presume that 50,000 years ago, there were, you know, I don't know, rocks and cheese. And, you know, somebody would say, I have this rock. How much cheese will you give for me? The other caveman says, Well, how much cheese do you want? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a very nice analogy. When you say not to say number, so do you mean just to be like, Oh, what is your number or what is your best offer? I see.
2: Yeah, So I try to say this because I really do believe it, that a lot of the things that we know, which is unfortunately a little bit why one of the weird aspects of disadvantages of a very advantageous situation is that Twitter allows cross-national conversations, international conversations And that's great because we can know what the job culture is in other countries and we can see the things that are good and say, like, let's copy that. But especially, I think the process of getting a job and then job salary negotiations, both of those things, I suspect, are extremely local. And it is helpful, but not particularly useful to understand what the culture of job negotiations is in the United States if you are in the UK or Australia or New Zealand or Thailand for that matter. So all of that to say, in my opinion, if you are an American job seeker and somebody asks you what are the salary requirements, the right answer is to say, well, what is the typical pay at this company for this position? Or another approach to this, I would be expected to pay the median starting salary for this local environment. But I believe that I'm a better than the median chemist. If you feel that you are above the better starting median chemist, you can kind of take that tack or you can pull out a piece of paper that's a printout from in the US, there's something called Glassdoor, which is one of these dumb websites that people post their salaries on. And you can never really know if it's accurate or not. But you know, you could say, well, I don't know if this is accurate, but you know, I like this number.
1: <laughs> I think as well for a lot of people in this day and age, it ultimately comes down to is it enough for you to live comfortably and then to consider, you know, other things Like, do you have a family, you know, are there location requirements for you for personal reasons and things like that? So, you know, yes, it's a number, but, you know, often there's other factors and I think it's being able to bring those into the kind of discussion and negotiation, you know?
2: Yes. And I think that one of the things that is so difficult, especially when it is the transition between a student and a professional in industry is, is that it is, I think, broadly true that your future salary within a field is dependent on your current salary. And you're basically negotiating for your future self. And especially when you're young, your future self wants to have things that your current self does not have, like a family and children or a larger home. And you have no real ability to understand both what you want, what financial needs you have because of the things that you want. You know, I plan to get married in the next two years. You know, I think that my relationship with my girlfriend slash fiance is going well. And that means that we will get married and we will move in together and we will have kids. So this hypothetical job seeker have all of this in mind. And it's like, how much money do you need to be able to do that? You know, I don't know. And it's all kind of
1: goofy. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the ChemConvos podcast. That's been the first part of our conversation with Chem Jobber. If you'd like to follow us over on Twitter at and you can follow him over at Chem on Twitter. We'll be back next time with the second part of the conversation. And we hope you can join us then. Have a great day.